everyone, I'm Hannah Lloyd. And I'm Charlotte Gilfillan. Welcome to our podcast, Women in Wellies. Each episode, we are joined by a guest to share their stories, experiences and lessons of working and living in rural Scotland. We want to get to know the real women behind the wellies and share them with you, our listeners. This episode is sponsored by the Landed Estates and Rural Business Team at Henderson Loggie Chartered Accountants. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Women in Wellies podcast. This week we are joined by Sally Crow. Sally, thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to meet you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, not too bad today. Bit knackered, busy week, but all good, thanks. Sounds like every week's a busy week from your from your notes that you've sent us in advance. Can you kick us off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, um, I am Sally. I'm a crofter in Keith's in Caithness. Um, I took over the croft from my mum and dad 20 years ago this year. Officially, I started running it, which seems like yesterday in one way, but a whole lifetime away from another one. You know, it's been wild ride I've got a wee boy he's uh, William he's four I croft my dad we live in a multi-generational house so there's me my dad and my wee boy William the three of us here which is great 90% 99% of the time it's great because it's challenges at times but um I run about 65 acres here I've got Irish moil cattle which are a rare breed and one only three herds in Scotland furthest north Irish moil herd in the world officially because there's nobody north of me with them um I've got about 70 hell cheviots and sell beef and lamb boxes to local customers I've got an egg delivery run um do a bit of online training about loads of stuff basically but busy busy not too busy because I don't like working too hard <laughs> I, I I do not believe that having having read everything that you get up to, I do not believe you don't like don't like working hard. And you run the croft with kind of regen ag kind of principles. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I kind of fell into it about what ten years ago. I had I'd been in Australia working, no New Zealand, uh, on the World Shearing Championships. Came home via Australia. I was a wool handler to visit friends. I picked up a bug in a shearing shed in Australia. Got pretty sick. Um, basically, I could do nothing for years. I was stuck in the house. Turns out this thing called Q fever. Um, and I had to find private treatment because there's no... It's not well known here. There's not much treatment in the UK for it. So all my money had to go into paying for treatment and not into the farm. So I couldn't afford fertiliser. It was the first thing to go. So I stopped using it. Um, after it, and my n- cattle numbers had to fall, sheep numbers had to fall because every time I needed treatment, one of the cows and calves kind of had to go. You know, it was I'd looked after them for years, so they looked after me for a bit, basically, is the way I look at it. And then, after a few years, I realised I didn't need fertilizer because I was getting the same amount of silage as my neighbours was getting. My ground was looking good, and cattle and sheep I did have were looking good as well. And then I eventually found a name on YouTube. I found Gabe Brown on YouTube, basically, um, and started following him and Ray Arcoleta and a few others, uh, Joel Salatin and things like that, that it had a name. It's Regen Agri is what I do. I just thought it was me being cheap. So I couldn't be bothered putting too many inputs in. And I like the way it's more, it goes with the flow of nature and the flow of the seasons and stuff a bit more region. I'm a bit of a happy too. You know, I do mindset courses. I've done mindfulness courses. I've got the odd crystal dotting about the house as well. You know, so I'm a bit of a happy as well. Um, it just appeals to me a bit more. And it like, I like the way I'm watching my craft develop. I'm watching the, now that we've been doing it about 10 years, watching the wildlife come back and, just the animals are looking healthier with I've got no vet spills well I changed breed as well so I kind of helped the vet spill issue there but you know it's all easy care animals they do it themselves basically I don't have to work so hard you know the whole work smarter not harder thing that's what I like I live by that if it's gonna make my life easier I'll do it basically I, I like that you you know your works you work um smarter not harder and how kind of from something that could have been a challenge that meant that you kind of couldn't croft at all anymore you've been able to find a way that works actually better for you and allows you to do to do so much more 
I mean, it wasn't easy at times, don't get me wrong. You know, I had quite bad mental health issues for a while through it because at mid, thir early 30s of the life, my granny at 95 had a better lifestyle than me, a better social life than me. You know, it was not easy. But I think through, I did a mindfulness training in the town with a friend there and I think it helped me realise that, you know, you've got to live for today. You've got to live for just now. You can't live for yesterday because it's gone. You can't live for tomorrow because it's not here. Although we have to inform in a bit because, you know, you're you're tupping, you're pulling, everything is, you're working six to eight months in advance, or a year, a couple of years in advance. But I think the whole, one of the turning points for me in the crofting thing, that I'd already sort of started moving in the region, I agree, and coming to realise what I was doing. But I went to Doug Avery, do you remember the New Zealand farmer who did the farm resilience tour? He was in Thurzo and I went to his talk and one of the things he said that stuck with me was the work smarter, not harder. And I've lived by it since. And he was saying very similar, he'd had the mental health issues and everything. Um, and it became, okay, cool, he changed around, I can do it, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Because he did, I felt a bit naff for really what I was doing. Everybody's like, what, what the hell is she doing now? You know, sort of thing. But I don't care, I just do what I do now and I'm quite happy to be me now. You know, I'm very accepting of who I am and what I want to do now. Which I think is hard for a lot of crofters and farmers to maybe get to that stage to go do you know what I don't want to do what my dad did or my mom or my granny or my granddad I actually want to do the croft how I want to do it or I want to do the farm how I want to do it and to actually be able to say that to your parents or your grandparents or your aunties or whoever you know was involved in the farm before you can be a challenge at times for some folk you know I'm, my dad just says oh right what are we doing now he just not care so much well his mum was a farmer you know not dad but his mum was a farmer years. So dad's a townie. Even he'd been on the farm for fifty odd years, but he's still a townie. So. <laughs> it's um it's really interesting hearing you say that, Sally, because I think about the the other kind of crofter we've had on is Lynn Cassells from Lynbrick Croft and she didn't have any of that kind of legacy stuff because they're a new entrant, you know, they bought they've bought the croft. Um but even she set talked about kind of feeling like are they doing this the right way? You know, what do other people nearby think about the way they're doing stuff? So it's really it is really interesting hearing you kind of say that and particularly when you kind of you sell differently because you sell all your or most of your beef and lamb in boxes direct to direct to your customers, don't you? And how did that come about? Basically, I started when I was sick. I couldn't afford to put any money into the farm. So we started sticking some lamb in the freezer because it's something I had that I could put something into the house. I had no money. I lived with mum and dad because I had to at that point. I had no money at all, you know. Um, so I put some lamb in the freezer and we were eating it. Actually, Audrey, our pet lamb, we ate the first year. We try not to dwell on poor Audrey. Um and then the next year I did sort of three or four and I just stuck an advert up on Facebook. Does anybody want, I'm putting lamb in the freezer. Does anybody want it? And I ended up selling a couple of lambs and then I kind of went into it more seriously, got registered, did everything I should do. Um, we did lamb only for about four years and then I started with beef as well because I was selling, at that point I had Limousine Cross and Belgian Blue Cross so they were all going to store and they were making good money. Wean calves at, you know, nine, eight, nine hundred pound. But we had the issue with getting them out alive sort of thing because they were not always doing that. Um, my vet's path was quite dramatic for a while as well with an issue I had one year with an AI bull that I used that was wrong. Um, so then when I got the Irish moils, I was like, well, everybody said the beef tasted really good. I tasted some of it from a friend. And that was it. I was hooked. I was like, right, I'm selling beef. Figured I would be able to sell maybe one. If I could sell one beast as boxes a year, I'd be doing really well. Three years ago, uh, two years ago, sorry, I had four, sold them out and could have doubled it. No problem. I've already on my wall here, I've got a waiting list. Basically, this, the two that I've only two this year because we're breeding numbers up a bit. But we have, we're fully sold out, fully booked already. And they're on their six months off being ready. You know, and the lamb now... I have, I'm up to 60 ewes, um, 20 of the ewes go pure for held cheviots for replacement lambs. The others go to cheviot meal to, to cheviot to blueface leister for cheviot meal lambs. The females all go for breeding and 
I think it was about 95% of my weathers made it to boxes this year. There's obviously going to be the few that are never going to quite make it. Although I'm trying to I cull out the bottom 10% weight-wise every year and then the mother of them every year because I'm trying to, trying to move to 100% grass-fed. So I've got far too many Excel spreadsheets going. <laughs> I do quite like an Excel spreadsheet as well. So I've got them for every little trait that I can follow. <laughs> wow. It's that side of farming that I think people like me who are like from the town don't even think about that you're like tracking and you're, you know, the way you're kind of selectively breeding, I guess you're kind of your lines to make sure that you get, you maximize what you get at the end. I never even thought about the fact that you would, you would do that as well as everything else that you're doing. We weight record from second hip to back onwards, so all eight weeks old onwards we every time we take them in we weigh because we're doing regenerative agriculture and we're doing rotational grazing we move every three days so running in and out's no problem because they're that used to moving they come as soon as you go up to open a fence they're there you know the sheep it makes your sheep a lot quieter i found a lot easier handled so taking them in to weigh is not a problem we have a decent setup we can run them through and we start sort of tracking Every month we wait to start off and then further up into September, it's every fortnight for the weathers that are going off fat, just so that I'm picking out what's ready. So maybe August onwards, depending on the year, we're sort of tracking what's going on. But I'm also, because I'm moving to 100% grass fed, it's going to take a sort of eight to 10 years. My cattle are there. The The only thing, the, the yearlings, when I wean the calves, they get barley and beet pulp and that's it they get it for the sort of three months they're inside just that support over that weaning stage but the rest of the time they're 100 percent grass fed the sheep it's lambing time obviously is that little blip that you want to feed them and you want them to be in the best condition so what i've been doing is i take body scores at tupping and then on scanning day just to add extra stress and i decided to do the scores again the body scores then then I'll do it again at lambing and then you do it again at weaning. So you're kind of, you're getting that four levels and you work out they should only lose about one body score between tupping and scanning. Um, so I've got it, oh, I've done all this beautiful formatting on my spreadsheet that <laughs> if they lose more than one body score or if they're below two, it flashes up with a red square and everything. It highlights the whole line so that I can pick that tag number. They'll then be pulled aside for feeding, but the rest that are doing okay won't be, but we'll monitor them. You know, we'll, we will probably handle them a bit more often in the lead, lead up to lambing. And then that line will be culled because they're not managing. If they can't manage a bit from scanning to tupping, eh, tupping to scanning, they'll be culled, you know, and then again, We'll weed out the bottom ones so that we're only taking the best families and the best female lines that can handle it. Through Twitter, I found all that out, following a lot of different folk on Twitter that have done it already. Um, and I just asked how they, um, I can't remember who it was, a guy with Herdwick somewhere that's moved, Regen Agri, that's moved to 100% grass fed and he's done it over about 10 years. And it was all the different bits that he tracked. He says, this is how I've done it and it's worked. And we don't feed, very rarely we feed. It's triplets, maybe get a bit of support at feed and that's it. So that's what I'm aiming towards anyway, hopefully. And in Caithness, it's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, add in location to that and weather and storms and conditions. It's, it's never going to be easy. I love the power of social media. Oh, Charlotte, I've said the power of. Oh, dear. <laughs> I love that Twitter's come to the fore here and that you're able to use it in that way. Yeah, it's social media is great, especially when you're moving into different style of farming because there's other people doing it. I'm not the first one to think of it. I'll not be the last one to think of it. If you can connect with other people that's doing it, you feel a little bit less crazy for a start. And then if people start telling you that you're crazy, I'm like, just because you don't do it, go and follow so-and-so on Facebook. He'll tell you he's doing it already and it's working for them. Why can't it work for me? Um, plus, I mean, I do all my lamb and beef sales is through Facebook, 100%. I haven't advertised. I haven't done anything else. It's all been through Facebook or word of mouth a bit as well. Um it's great it's free man you know it's free well, in fact it's i got my page the croft i got asked to do the whole performance bonus thing that you get paid to post 
I was like, yes, I'm going to be rich. I've made um, 73 cents in the last three and a half weeks. So they don't pay out until you get $100. So I think it's something like five and a half years time I'll get a payout. But hey, it's free money. <laughs> five, five and a half years. You'll get there, Sally. You'll get there. <laughs> Sally, last year you, you wrote something called the Farm Emergency Planner. Can you kind of tell us a bit about where that came from, where the idea came from, and what the Farm Emergency Planner actually is? The, the Prince's Countryside Trust, as it was at the time, an RSABI, but it's now the King's Countryside Trust or something, they did the Farm Resilience Programme, and they've done it a couple of years now. They go around different areas, and they hold six meetings. You have a facilitator and you have a different um, speaker at each meeting. They do things like you get your account, somebody comes in and takes your account figures and takes it away and does benchmarking through somebody in Edinburgh, I kind of mind one of the accountants does the benchmarking against everybody else in your group, but against, they have other people, you're all anonymized, so you don't know everybody else's figures. Um, we had talks about environmental schemes. We had talks about, I don't mind, I missed one because I had COVID. Um, what else did we have? I can't really remember the other ones. It was good. They were all good and they were all helpful. You got a free feed out of it as well. You got a free meal, which was my thought at the start of it was, I've got a three-year-old. If I can get six nights out over the winter and get a free meal speaking to adults, not having to put him to bed by myself, I'll be delighted. That's all I'm happy. If I take anything else out of it, it'll be good. And we had um, Heather Wildman up, who does the farm succession planning. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a bit dreary but Heather's amazing you know she's she's fantastic she's cheery she's happy she's got so many different ways of putting things across in such a plain and simple terms that it makes you kind of think well why have I not done that and when I was driving home I was like well I'm pretty good you know I've got my will I've got my power attorney I've got all that sorted out um because my mum had had a brain tumour years ago and we didn't have that sorted out then and it made me go oh we need to do this and I've done it um, but then I was like I need to write down all my farm information because if I die coming home tonight dad's not a clue dad has not a clue he couldn't even turn my phone on I don't think he would never get into my laptop he would never find he would get there but it would take so much stress to figure out who he had to speak to all the different accounts on the farm and stuff so I went looking because I know you get life planners that you get normal ones, you know, for everybody that you can write everything down. If you die, there you go. There's my details. I thought I'll get a farm one and there isn't one or there wasn't one at that point. And I searched for days all over them, all over the internet, UK, worldwide, wherever, and I couldn't find one. So I wrote one. Um, and it's got everything in it, basically. And it, it took me about six months between lambing, calving, learning how to loop. I was I did it on Canva. I've never used it before, so I had to learn how to do it. I had to figure out what all I needed to do and then how to publish it and how to do Oh, it's huge learning curve. And I'm not doing well on the market. Like to it. I'm, it's written and everybody who gets it says it's brilliant, but I'm just... I've, I'm getting my head around it all. But now, it's... Um, 46 pages that's got literally every single thing you need to know about the farm in it um, so that if something happened, if you become incapacitated or die or something you don't like to see it, I don't like to see you know, if you die, who's going to do your book work I mean, I got people from all over the UK to help me in Ireland so it, it covers the whole of the UK and Republic of Ireland as well and it's got all the bits for your government logons like rural payments because it's different every you, every Devolved government and Republic of Ireland has different names for everything and little things like tweaking it like that. Like a friend borrowed it and he came up with three other things that I've forgotten about that I need to put in the next edit. So, um, but yeah, I've enjoyed doing it. I have enjoyed it. And the bit that I like about it is everyone who buys it, if something happens to them, I've helped make their family's life easier at a stressful time. You know, it's not about the money or it's not about anything that it's just about we do have an issue with mental health and farming just now and if it's something one tiny little bit that takes a little bit off of somebody's mind to know that they've got that written and secure then that's good enough for me you know it's helping one person that's all that matters sort of thing mm -hmm. what an incredibly powerful tool 
and I think you can we can probably say thanks for creating it for on behalf of lots of people because it's it's so powerful. It's mainly the women that buy it because let's face it, it's in a lot of families it's the wife that does all the paperwork, so they buy it and they write it down because they know where everything is. You know, they know all the logins and everything. Um, Sally, I want to go back to your when you were poorly, when you got Q fever. And the implications that that had, not only on your life, but your parents' life, um, the implications that that had on the farm. I mean, obviously, you know, you said that you'd have to um, uh, sell livestock to be able to pay for treatment. But tell us a little bit more about that experience, because you were housebound. It started mm, February 2012. Actually, Highland Show the year before. I got on the Scottish shearing team as one of the wool handlers. There's six of us on the team. Gavin, Much, Hamish Mitchell, Mark Armstrong, um, Willie Craig, me and Stacey. And we were going to New Zealand. It was in Masterton, the home of shearing, you know. And I've worked in the shearing industry for years. I went to Australia, worked in wool rolling there in the sheds for a couple of years. I worked with various contractors here. I love wool, part of my thing. The chance to go to New Zealand to the home of shearing to represent your country. There was 32 countries at it. Huge. I mean, it was big at the Highland Show here last year. In New Zealand, the, the New Zealand president was there. I mean, New Zealand Prime Minister, Tony Dobbs at the time, I think it was, he was there and he shore a sheep because he was a farmer's son. It was huge over there, you know. Gavin won. Gavin much won. First, second Scot to win in ever. The other Scot that had won was Tom, who was our, Tom Wilson, who was our team manager. So it was pretty big, you know. Came home on a high, well, came, went to Australia after it to drop in, just pop in to visit friends as you do when you're down that way, you know. Um, My best friend Helga, one of my best friends, she was with us in New Zealand. She came to Australia with me. We went to shed. She was working for a contractor there. I went to shed one afternoon to visit, threw a couple of fleeces around, had a bit of fun, never thought anything of it. Came home, pretty much went straight from coming home from Australia had a couple of days off and went into a night shift lambing that I did here on one of the bigger farms. It was like 900 sheep inside. I did the night shift there. Got a cold and I just kind of niggled and it niggled for months and it just never, it would go away a bit and then it would come back. If I did too much, I was tired. So I did the Leiniger lambing and I went to, I did two other lambings, two day, a day lambing and another night lambing. And I went over to Balmoral Show and I really wasn't feeling well then. I was my one of my friends I'd lived with at college was getting married. We went to Balmoral Show par- party, basically. At that point, I was younger, you know, I was over for a holiday. And I just never got better. We went to the Highland Show. And I can tell you the minute that it tipped over when I got really ill, I was walking. It was a Thursday night. We were walking up from the North Gate, walking up towards the grandstand, and something just went blip. And I felt, oh, I really... I really don't feel good here. Um, and it went from being sort of yuck feeling to being this is right through me. And it just, it was a weird, funnily enough, everybody I've spoken to who's had Q fever or they can pretty much pinpoint a time when it's just blipped over. Because you get two types of it. You get the the acute type that hits you, you get a kind of cold pneumonia type cold thing and it goes away or you get the chronic type and it's only like five percent of people that get the chronic type and I was one of them unfortunately um and then it just it took months it took me about two years to get diagnosed as to what it was we went through varying because I had MRIs I had everything it was breast cancer at one point they thought it was a slip disc in my neck and eventually the doctor sort of went do you know what? You've you've got CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, which is badly named. It's myelagic encephalomyelitis. It's ME is the right name. CFS is the wrong term for that one. And it's horrible. You literally, you try to work, you do something today, but you get this thing called post-exertional malaise that knocks you back for days after it. So you try to work today and it's basically for about two days, three days, six months, it can be some folk I know are years later still the same, that it feels like you've run a marathon, you've got the worst hangover, you've got the flu, your brain stopped working, and it's literally just like somebody's pulled the plug out and the energy is just bottomed out, gone. There was loads of others, headaches, muscle aches, loads and loads of other stuff. 
And eventually I got my doctor to test me for Q fever because I'm like, look, this is in the sheds in Australia. There's a fair chance this could be what it is. Yes, it came back. That's what I've got. High levels for it. And then, oh, we'll put you to tropical medicum doctor in Inverness and she's like I've never heard of it but this is what I've read and I was like just go away it's nothing you can do literally just learn to live with it's like right and this is about three years two years in two and a half years in then so I'd done nothing I mean I hadn't some points I hadn't left the house for weeks on end I'd been in my bed or on the couch and I'd sleep 17 hours a day and not feel refreshed you know your sleep is not refreshing at all some folk are like, oh, it must be like having a newborn baby, but no. I mean, I have a, William was a baby, it was only me. He was up every hour, two hours, it was nothing. That was a walk in the park compared to having what it's like having Q fever, you know, or Amy, because it's, it's very similar. So I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm one of the lucky ones who was diagnosed with Amy, who actually found a cause for it and could get treatment. The vast majority don't, because they don't really know what causes it, and it's kind of a catch-all term. So... It's a hard one because I don't want to disrespect the folk who do have ME and don't have any treatment, but it's very similar. You know, the symptoms is very similar. And just randomly one night, it must have been in an ME chat room, I got speaking to a South African lady, Estelle. She messaged me, she's like, I've got Q fever too, and I know this doctor. She's going to think I'm nuts, but she's in South Africa. She's amazing. It's what she treats. She's, she does ME, Lyme disease, Bilharzia, um, loads of other rickettsia style illnesses um and i was like whatever i can't go to south africa i can't even go to wick how the hell am i going to get to south africa you know i can't afford it i've got no money i've got an overdraft i'm broke you know um and she's like oh but she comes to belgium she does treatment in her sister's house actually because she was because it's eu she was registered to do it there so it was okay it was it was above board it's not dodgy and eventually, after a while, I was like, right, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'll figure out a way to do it. Um, so I spoke to them and I had a phone consult <clears throat> and I got, had to send blood over to Johannesburg, which is a whole saga in itself, trying to figure out how you sell human blood to Johannesburg right through the post. You don't. And we did it eventually. It took me months to figure that one out. And it came back with that I'd got Q fever, I'd got... Rickettsia museri, which comes from fleas. I must, I think I picked it up in New Zealand. I'd got endemic typhus and I'd got mycoplasma pneumonia and sounds really bad, but it's called chlamydia pneumonia, but it's not related to the sexually transmitted disease. Make that one clear. It's a different type of pneumonia. So it was pretty ill, basically. You know, it was pretty crook. She was coming to, Dr. Jaden, she was coming to Belgium in about two months, a month later, six weeks, and she managed to squeeze me in. And what she does, there was a pharmacy around the corner from her sisters. We were still in the EU at the time, so it made life a lot easier. And they gave me six months worth of treatment, basically. So I had to come back through customs from France back into the UK because I came, I went on the tunnel. And I was coming back through my backpack full of drugs, all prescription drugs, nothing illegal. Man, I felt worse. I was panicking. But yeah, I had to, the travel there and back, you know, it was four days was all I had. I took a sleeper to London to try and make everything a bit easier and it was cancelled. So I had to fly and that just, oh, it was awful. I was in my bed for about three weeks after the time I got home. In fact, I got to Belgium and I literally got off a train, got a taxi to a hotel and slept and then went to Dr. Jaden's and went back to a hotel and slept and left. So, although I've been to Belgium, I've seen none of it. It's all the countryside on the train. It's very pretty. So it was two and a half years from getting it to being diagnosed and then you were diagnosed went to Belgium got your treatment and then it was six months worth of treatment and did the treatment work in that time yeah I had a year's worth of treatment I had a full year's worth I had to go back and see her again so yeah it worked it was basically she cycles antibiotics you have a week of antibiotics and you have three weeks of an anti-malarial and it's different antibiotics. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three. It's a huge level. She's treated people all over the world. She has clinics in America, Canada, all over. You know, she's amazing, the woman. She's done so much. And luckily, I was one of the ones they worked for. It was pretty rough because Q fever, as it dies, as a, it's a it's a spirochete, it's not a bacteria. It's a kind of slight, it's a specific type of bacteria. As it dies, it releases an endotoxin that poisons your body. So when you take the antibiotics, you get this massive die-off and you get 
Herxheimer reaction, which is, oh, and you have to have, the easiest way to get rid of it is to sweat it out and get your liver to get rid of it and your skin. So I've got a sauna that I had to sauna. Part of my treatment was to have an infrared sauna every day for an hour. And I did that religiously for a year. And it worked. You know, it worked. It was rough. It was really, really rough. I wouldn't want to do it again. Some some months were worse than others. Some months you sailed through. Some months were, oh, really horrific. But it worked. And gradually I started to get energy back and get better. Are you effectively cured now then? No, no, I still have it. I still, I'll have it for life. You can't get rid of it. It's one of those what really <clears throat> weird ones that you just can't get rid of. It's very, very similar to chronic Lyme disease. It mimics, it acts in a very similar way. If you've got it, you've got it for life. You basically have to, a pace, I still do what they call pacing, which is where you watch what you're working, you watch what you're doing, you plan your week ahead, you watch what you're doing. I try not to do too much mental activity or physical activity on the same day. And if I do overdo it, I have to say a couple of days doing very little sort of thing. So that's one way that the Regen Agri actually works for me as well, because you're not busting your gut every day having to do you know, heavy work and stuff. You're trying to, um, lambing's much easier because the sheep are doing it themselves. You know, and calving, they do it themselves. It's not quite so much heavy work, you know. So that two and a half year period where you've started to feel very unwell, it's impacted every single aspect of your life. You're not able to do all the things that you would normally be able to do. Um, You must have gone to a really dark place in that time. Where did you find the resilience to keep going, to try and find a cure or to try and find some treatment, to try and keep the keep the croft going, to try and you know do all the things that you wanted to do? Where did that come from? Oh, my mum and dad, definitely. My mum's family. Mum's, mum's, the women in my mum's family are, I think we'll call them very determined and very... Strong-minded, very strong. We're stubborn as hell, basically. There's no two ways about it. It goes down out two or three generations out. We're all the same. Very similar, uh, which is great. You know, it's good. But mum and dad, I wouldn't have done it. Dad did all the work. I mean, dad was mid-70s. He was retired. Mum was still fit at that point, thankfully. Um, I mean, during all that time as well, I was a year in. We lost my granny. She died. I was very, very close to my granny. We lost her at a year when I was just a year into being sick. Um, the bank decided to foreclose my overdraft in the middle of it all as well. Um, what else happened? Oh, it was, a, it was, I'm going to swear, it was a shit storm for a couple of years, actually. There's no way of describing it. Um, I was very depressed. You know, at one point, one of the drugs they put me on at one point, um, it can cause suicidal thoughts, which it did. You know, it was drug-induced suicide. And I went to the doctor and I saw a locum and he's like, uh, I just stopped taking them. It's before Christmas, and I'm like, I can't do that. So I went and looked, Googled it. Google was my friend, you know, support groups on Facebook, the ME support group. Friends, I've got two friends that I still speak to regularly through it that we joined at the same time. We went through the same. Two of me and Mags are doing okay. Poor next not. She's still incredibly ill. It's 10 years later, you know, she's still housebound. She's worse than she was, you know. It's awful. She's had no life for 10 years. But we were able to support each other when we were fit. Um, a lot of friends didn't really understand, thought I was faking. No, there's nothing wrong with you. you Because know, they'd see me maybe going to the mart to sell, but they wouldn't see me for the three days afterwards or the four days afterwards. I remember there's one farmer, he came up to me about two years after I had treatment and he came up to the mart one day and he says, do you know what? I didn't think you were going to make it. So I remember seeing you at the mart one day and he said, I thought you were going to die. He says, you look like hell. He says, I'm glad you're better. It's like, so am I. <laughs> you know, very much glad I'm better. But you kind of didn't have a choice. I just had to keep going, you know, and I did... As I say, I do. I am a bit of a hippie chick. And there's a lady, a friend, good friend in the town, Donna. She runs a Vitality alternative therapy. She does Reiki. She does crystal therapy. But she also does counselling and stuff as well. And she did a mindfulness course. It was a six-week mindfulness course, health mindfulness course. And it, it was all friends. I mean, there's four of us that were really good friends that did it together. Um, and that was a huge turning point, just sort of figuring out where I wanted to go. I started reading lots of books by the Dalai Lama people like that you know it's, it's weird the stuff you get drawn to when you're really down um before that I'd been work 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 you know I jobbed around and worked here there and everywhere whereas I kind of 
I had to stop that entirely. So you got all this time in your hands to learn, to read. Reading was one of the things I could do, but not in a huge amount. I could read for maybe half an hour and then you'd have to sleep for a while. Couldn't do much on my phone. Although I could still do Facebook and stuff in bits, you know. I think a lot of it is just sheer bloody mindedness and stubbornness. Was there ever a point, Sally, where you just thought, I can't do this anymore? Many, many, yeah, many, many. There's no two ways about it. You know, there was a lot. How do you keep going, you know? And I think then when I found a treatment, I think if I hadn't found the treatment, things might have been a lot different. It would have been a lot different. I wouldn't have William. I wouldn't have a Croft. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, the fact that the Croft's owned as well has made a huge difference because I didn't have to find rent. You know, mum and dad, they supported me financially as well for a while. And do you think that having had that experience, it changed your outlook on life? Because subsequent to that you decided that you wanted to have IVF to have William? Um, Yeah, totally changed my outlook on life entirely. If you want something, go for it. There's no point sitting having regrets because I had a lot of regrets when I was sick. Obviously, one of them being I was mid-30s, early to mid-30s, never going to have kids. So I was 39 and I was just finishing treatment and I was like, "Ah, do you know what? I want to have a kid. I really want a baby. I want to at least try you know, at least if I don't, if it doesn't work, I'm 39, I'm coming 40 in three months. If I'm going to do it, literally, I, that ended on the Black Isle show day. Great day that was. And then on the Monday, that was a Thursday. And on the Monday, I was on the phone to my doctor making the appointment with IVF saying, I'm wanting to have IVF. What do I do? And that was it straight away. And I was in Aberdeen a month later having my te- first lot of tests and everything. I said to my mum and dad, and my mum was like, yeah, cool, whatever. And dad was like, oh, really? Don't think that's a good idea. I remind him of that quite frequently now, because him and William are best friends, you know. But that was 19 months I went through fertility treatment, varying, had three IUIs, um, and then I had IVF. And IUIs, you have to do it. I Obviously, I had to pay for it as well, because I'm single, so you don't get that on the NHS, so I had to fully pay that myself. Um, worth it. 100% worth it. Fuck, do I, 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 no, I wouldn't do it again tomorrow. One, I'm one and done. I had a horrific pregnancy. I had hyperemis gravidarum. Threw up until the day William was born. Damn my throat. No way I'm having any more. One and done. Too old now. I'm 46 now, anyways. He was born on my 42nd birthday as well. When you became a mum, after everything that you'd been through, how did that feel? Oh, brilliant. Loved it. Loved the baby stage. He was born three months before lockdown as well, which was great for me because we just snuggled at home and cuddled at home and I loved it. Just toddler stage. Oh, I quite love it so much. He's very, he's very, like one of the, he goes to two nurseries at the moment, an outdoor one and then the one that he'll go to primary school. And one of the teachers at one of the nurseries says, he's, William knows his own mind. I'm like, he's a stubborn, stubborn little child. I was going to say, it sounds like that's going to run in the family. <laughs> it is, it's a hundred, he's taken after that side of the family a hundred. He knows his own mind, that's for, he's clever too. He's a smart wee cookie. And I loved it. Absolutely love it. Just, yeah, it's like, I think being older as well, I don't have that worry that I'm missing out on stuff. You know, I'm not worrying that I'm giving up stuff to have them and I'm giving up stuff that I could be doing. I'm quite happy. I spent basically the first year just at home with them doing, well, I couldn't go anywhere because of COVID, you know, so. And how do you get a balance with all the things that you're doing? Because it's not just the craft, it's not just the farming side. You have the emergency planners that you've written. You have other things that you do. You sit on committees and boards and um, you do lots and lots of other different things. How do you get a balance with that and family life and farming? Yeah, it's hard. You know, it's not easy. Mum's in hospital as well. She has dementia. So we're trying to get her to a care home. She's been nine months in hospital waiting for a care. That's a whole other story again. I'm fighting, fighting to get a bed, fighting NHS Highland rules and NHS social work rules at the moment, um, which is ongoing. I just say no to stuff. You know, you don't want to do it. It's like, nah, sorry, this is time off doing nothing. Quite strict. We don't generally do, we work, we don't work at tea time, after tea time. No, after in the winter here because it's pitch black in Caithness by three o'clock so we don't work after three o'clock cows are fed at three o'clock job done the way I've got the shed set up um 
because I'll film on a croft, we've got modern sheds, because a lot of crofts, you think of a croft, and it's the little buyer and the tied buyers. We've got quite modern sheds and easy, good system. Um, I spent a lot of, when I was well, my theory was that I needed to invest money in getting the sheds done up as easily as possible to have as light, shortest time amount of work in winter feeding cattle so that I could go and work somewhere else. But now it's I can have as little time feeding and bedding cattle so I can do something else and it's not work, you know. Um, you have to be quite organised. And I do like a bit or I like a to-do list. I do like, a, well, I have this, this thing. I found a three-point to-do list that you literally get up every morning and you say, I'm going to do the three most important things that I need to do today. And you do them and that's it. By the time you come five days a week, it's 15 things by the end of the week. You know, I, I live by that one. It revolutionised my life. It makes it so easy to do. I try not to work weekends. We do the bare... Well, obviously, do feeding, checking, lambing time, calving, whatever, you know, but weekends is time off. Um, I schedule holidays. I've got a massive wall planner up, and I schedule holidays, and they're blocked out in orange at the start of the year. I've got four on it already. <laughs> Three for me. I've got actually. I've got four holidays booked. And I haven't got one booked with William yet, so I need to go and book one with William, two with William yet. So I'm quite. And it's when I'm saying holidays, it's a day to a day or two here and there. You know, it's time off's important. Time out's important. Um. But yeah, I do. I hear things get double scheduled sometimes, and I end up. I might be on two Zoom calls at once, and it just doesn't work. Um. I'm a director of the Irish Moyle Cattle Society and one of the things I did last year was the online show which was we had a hundred and something entries and each entry put three pictures and one video but it's all done by WhatsApp so everybody sends it to WhatsApp you then have to file it into correct files and it's all and then you have to make up videos because we did online judging so you then had to make and it's 20 classes and you have to do the top six of each one so yeah, that was about a week's worth. So my task is to find an easier way to do it. And I think I figured something. Chat GPT. I use it all the time. I love it. If you need to know something, chat GPT. And I have figured out a way to do it. I think that's going to work. So I have to trial that in the next couple of weeks. But that was two nights ago. I was like, oh, this might work. And I went and Googled it and it does. It should work in theory. I'm not very good with tech, but I'm getting better. Oh, it sounds like your street's ahead of a lot of people, Sally, to be honest, me included. So, no, I think it's really impressive. But just going back to the work-life balance thing, so important to have the discipline to do that. And planning plays such a massive part of that, undoubtedly. And I think that... Um, one of the issues that we have with mental health, particularly in agriculture, is the fact that it is a 24-7 job and there is no there is no escape from it. And even, and you know, Hannah mentioned Lynn's episode, um, Lynn Cassells, that we interviewed previously. And Lynn had quite rightly said, you know, her and her partner Sandra have had to carve out time to spend together away from it. But that's been quite difficult because you're putting your faith and trust in somebody else to run things while you're away. You're constantly thinking about it. You're thinking about what could happen. Um, but just having that discipline of, of having that time is so important from the mental health aspect. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's also having the being willing to take the time off because too many farmers are like, oh no, I can't, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do this. What people think if I'm not here, it's, it goes back to that worried what other people would think, you know, and it's like, I'd actually think you're really cool if you took a week off, two weeks off on holiday with your kids and spent that time with your kids, you know, and enjoyed yourself. Um, the planning aspect, yeah, it's really important. You have to, and I think by, by booking holidays at the start of the year or carving that time out you can work around them you can plan around them again I'm lucky here dad's here dad's fit dad he was in the merchant navy he he was captain in the merchant navy he traveled all his life so he's not fussed about going in he's quite happy to stay at home now so he's here but he's 80 he's coming 80 in March and he's not always going to be here but there's good people around there's plenty of farm sitters around there's plenty kid there's plenty teenagers desperate to get a chance to have a go on a farm and if you're away for a weekend Really, if you're leaving it that you've got animals, okay, maybe no tractor work, you need to trust them a bit for it. But if you go away and you come back and everything's still upright and everyone's got food and water in front of them, 
okay, he's maybe done it differently. Does it really matter? You know, because people are like, oh, he doesn't do it how I want to do it. And it's like, yes, but nobody else does it how you want to do it because we're all quite particular. We've got our quirks, how we like things done. As long as they're fed, as long as they're watered, we animals side of things, fine. Go and do Obviously, you can't go on holidays at busy times, you know, but trusting people a bit more. There's plenty good farm sitters out there who want to do it. There's plenty retired folk who would come and look after your, do a farm, do a holiday swap, you know. They come to yours, you go to theirs. and Or they come to yours and you go off somewhere else. There's plenty of folk would do it. Thank you so much for sharing so much with us. I'm like, definitely feeling inspired from this conversation. But we end every episode by asking our guests what one piece of advice, or maybe several in your case, would you give to the next generation of women um, coming into rural Scotland? Mm, good one. I would say follow your heart and do what you want to do. Don't listen to anybody else. Except, you know, don't listen to the focus. That's not how we do it. This is how my grandfather did it and this is how we do it. Ignore them. Go and find people who inspire you. Find people who are doing what you're wanting to do and ask them how they do it. Message them on Facebook. Here, we all, we've all got egos. <laughs> we all like somebody messaging us going, I like what you're doing. How do you do it? We'll all quite happily blurt out. And most people will. You know, some folk, most people. So ask questions, follow your heart, do what you want to do. If, I mean, it's rural, so if you don't want to farm, say it. You know, don't get stuck. I know a lot of people my age group, got some friends in a situation that have been, they farm because they had no other choice. You know, they didn't get that choice to go off to college. They didn't get to do anything. They, they came on, they stayed on the family farm because that's what they did and that's what they respected to do. And they've put their life into the family farm for the last 30 odd years at my age, you know, mid 40s. So yeah, 30 odd years now. And they're, they're not happy. They wanted to go off and be a joiner or a painter or whatever, you know, a hairdresser, whatever they wanted to do. But they didn't because they had to do the farm. If you don't want to do it, speak up and say it's follow, definitely 100% follow your heart and what you want to do. And don't panic about Oh, I don't know what I want to do in life. I'm 46. I still don't know what I want to do in life. What I'm doing now might not be what I want to do in 10 years. You know, it's, you can change. There's no, you don't, just because you pick a college course or because you'd say you're going to do this job today doesn't mean you have to do it in a year, five years, 10 years. You can chop and change. You can go back to college at any time you want. I went back to college and did accounting. Oh, a couple of years ago, before William was born. Or when I was having IVF, I went back and did accounting then. You know, there's no reason why you can't do something different with your life. Just enjoy yourself. Life's short. Enjoy it, you know. And have a holiday. Have as many holidays a year as possible. <laughs> so, yeah, and passive income. You've got an idea. Get it on passive income so you make it once and sell it a million times. Then you can go lie on the beach in Maldives making money while you're doing nothing. That's the... That's living the dream, isn't it? <laughs> we'll help you get to selling a million farm emergency planners then. Is that the, is that the goal? That'd be great. <laughs> Sally, some great inspirational advice there. And I think you you are you are a really strong role model with all the things that you've done, all the things that you've gone through, all the things that you've achieved and how you've come out the other side and the resilience that you've demonstrated and the imagination that you've shown and the creativity as well. And um, I kind of get the impression from you that you have this sort of inner drive to help people as well you know going back to what you said at, at the start of this conversation about even if you help one person um that that comes through you seem to be really passionate about that which is lovely yeah i'd say well we're not here to we're here does this keep saying we're here for a short time so if we can make somebody's life better in it why not you know why not just do it it's um doesn't it cost me anything to be nice or to be helpful so I think my mum did a lot. You know, my mum was, she sat on NFU. She was, her and Joe Durno were the first females on NFU at one point. You know, the branch and area presidents at the same time, they were both the first women elected on to um, National Council as well at the same time. There was about a day apart between them. And mum helped people all the time. She was always doing something, always organising something, raft races or PTA or whatever. You know, she did loads of stuff. My granny, my dad's mum as well, she was 
she just quietly organised stuff and got on with it. She taught and was taught people how to knit and sew in the school until she was in her, I think, late 80s, early 90s, you know, and just volunteered to do that. So it's kind of been brought up. Like, like my aunties, they, they did um, Riding for the Disabled. My, three of my aunties and my uncle, they all did it as well. It's just kind of what you do, you just help folk. Yeah, sounds like you've had some great strong role models as well, though. Oh, yeah, oh, definitely, you know, definitely. I mean, I joke about the women in our family being stubborn, but they get stuff done, you know. They all get stuff done. They've all had great careers in whatever they've chosen to do, and they've all, my aunties are all, yeah, they've all done so much. Yeah, and I'm really intrigued. What comes next for you? What plans have you got? Who knows? I don't know. At the moment, I don't know, really. I've got... I've got holiday plans. I sat and did it. I do mind maps quite a lot. I love a good mind map where you just dump everything on a bit of paper and then you write it out. And I've got things like on it, there's farm, online, passive income, voluntary flowers. But then there's this massive blip that says fun. And at the bottom, there's like five bits that says holidays. And there's future holidays, current holidays, free holidays. You know, there's... Holidays, basically, that's what comes next for me. Enough money, well, just enough money to live. Make enough money to live and enjoy myself and have an easy life and see what happens. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen, you know? I've done lots over the years and, ah, it could be anything, knowing me. It could be anything at all. <laughs> well, we can't wait to see what comes next for you, Sally, anyway. Um, listen, brilliant conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. No problem. I've really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Made me think as well. And questions made me think a little bit, which is good. Always like being challenged to think a bit harder. No, it's been brilliant, Sally. Thank you ever so much. Um, if you'd like to connect with Sally on social media, you will find all her details in the show notes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Instagram at Women and Wellies Podcast to stay up to date with all the latest news. And you can email us with any questions on womeninwelliespodcast at gmail.com and we'd love it if you could leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time.